Well, good morning. Good to see you. Good to be here as we open our Bibles to the last book of the Old Testament. I don't know if, uh, if you've been trying to read through the prophets, but I suspect, uh, I, you know, if you, if you haven't and you've been wondering about it uh, and you've maybe heard uh, some passages from Isaiah or something like that read or tried to read, um, once again this morning when we come to Malachi, we find, as I emphasized last week, that each of these prophets is so individual and so different from one another that if you, if you read through them, I'm sure you're going to find one that really is, is in line with your way of, of understanding things. And, and they're just each so unique and individual, which, uh, which brings really a rather consistent message to us in many different ways and in a way that each of us can hear it and receive it. Now, what's different about Malachi is that... Um, his book, his writing, is presented to us as a dialogue between God and his people. There's questions, there's answers, it's, it's just a dialogue, it's a conversation, a recorded conversation that, that Malachi puts down in his book, and as you read it, it's just like reading a conversation. So that's an that's a easy way to get into the material and, and to hear things. And what I want to do this morning is I want to um, structure my comments around three questions that the people ask of God. I mean, that's what happens in a conversation, right? You ask someone a question, and then you find out more about them, uh, if they are willing to answer. And that's what happens here. So um, there's more questions than just three in the book, but I want to focus around three for the time that we have. So the first question is asked by the priests. And the priests ask God, how have we shown contempt for your name? Uh, There's obviously a context to that question, but that's the question they ask, and God answers. Uh, The second question comes from the people in general, and the question is, how have we robbed you, God? Uh, We don't even understand how that would be possible. Since you're God and we're not, how have we robbed you? And then the third question is, I think, kind of more everyone, the priests, the leaders, the people. What have we said against, and I know there's a typo there, but it should say your name, or against you, whichever one, but it should be against your name. What have we said against your name? So just a few, well, I guess it's a month or two ago already, I was at the optometrist. And uh, they put my chin on this thing and my forehead against the other thing. They give me a little button. And then they have all these little lights that come on, and I'm supposed to push the button every time I see a light. And I'm sure some of you have had that as well. And it's the worst video game ever, but I play to win. So I'm going to hit that button every time there's a light, and I'm sure I hit it even sometimes when there's no light. I'm, I'm pretty dedicated when I do that. And no matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I play, uh, when the printout comes out, it shows that they can put a light in some specific spots and I don't push the button. You know what that means, doesn't it? I've got blind spots. So they check it every year, make sure it's not growing, because I'd be blind eventually if blind spots grow, or there's treatments if, if it's becoming a problem. But I don't like the idea of having blind spots. Uh, I... I don't see any blind spots. I can see all of you. But the optometrist tells me that there are specific areas in my field of vision that I don't see anything. 
And that's what we're really talking about here in, in these questions, aren't we? Spiritual blind spots. God has brought an accusation against the priests, and they're denying it. How have we shown contempt? We don't see it. We don't agree with you, God. Or how have we robbed you? I don't think we have. Or what have we said against your name? We've, we've never sworn in our life. So that's, a, that's an issue, and we need to look into the context of, my, Mal, of Malachi just a little bit to understand God's accusations and their answers, and then maybe apply it to ourselves. And uh, you're probably familiar with a map something like this. You probably have one in the back of your Bible. Uh, the red indicates the Babylonian Empire, and those are the ones that overtook Jerusalem and, and, and took the people into exile. And then the green, which also covers all of the red, is the Persian Empire, which came afterwards, a much larger empire. But the, the situation in Jerusalem changed a little bit during that time because of a change of, uh, of emperor and, uh, and the, the world power at that time. So as we dive into the book itself, uh, I want to give you two key passages that kind of relate to this. And the first one is probably the Maybe the one quote you've heard too many times out of Malachi. You've, you've heard, probably heard before, uh, God hates divorce. God said he hates divorce. Well, this is where it comes from. This is where God says that. But I'd, I'd encourage you to read that in its full context because it's a mu- actually a much more positive message than that. What he's really saying in the context of that passage is, I love single-hearted people. I love single-hearted people. And so if you're the kind of person that makes a, a, a commitment to a man or a woman, and then you, you break that commitment, you're not a single-hearted person. You're not the kind of person that is going to make a commitment to God and then stick with it through your life. You're going to let it slide. And so that's what that passage is all about. I, I love single-hearted people. People that don't waver all over the place and change their mind about important things or even unimportant things. It's related to the, the other commandment about, uh, about not to, to take vows. Why would, you have to, why would you have to vow when people already know that you keep your word? You're a single-hearted person. When you say something, that's the way it's going to be. You don't have to add conditions and stuff to it. You're, that's just the type of person you are. So that's what that passage is all about. And then I give you the fourth chapter, which I'm not going to mention, but it really is the place where, where everything comes together. And, uh, and it's about that, that day that is coming. Uh, in their case, they were anticipating the coming of the Messiah, which is in our rearview mirror, but then also the second coming and the final conclusion where God is King and Lord of all things. And so uh, that's, that's a good, encouraging chapter to read. But in terms of the context for Malachi... Uh, we want to look at the, the timeline here a little bit. And um, just to get it into context. So this is what I talked about with... This is the Babylonians. They overtook Jerusalem and took the people into exile. Now, uh, right here is the Persians. So this doesn't actually immediately affect Jerusalem and the people of God, they're scattered in the Babylonian Empire. But the Persians overtake the Babylonian Empire. But they have a different foreign policy. 
The Babylonian foreign policy was to take everyone out of a conquered land and move them somewhere else. Relocation to disrupt society so that there wouldn't be rebellion. The Persians were more likely to leave people in place, keep their religious establishments in place and their cultural traditions, and just make sure that they're, they're paying tribute. So it's, they, they saw it more as a, as a province of the greater empire, as long as, as, long as you were, were not rebelling, as long as you were paying your tribute, your taxes, uh, then, then they kind of wanted you to keep your thing together. Uh, and so under the Persians, that's when we have the return of the remnant to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, a different foreign policy. And so interesting, not necessarily to us today, but from last Sunday, um, we have right here, this is when the temple construction was halted. That's Haggai, and that's Zechariah. And uh, you remember in Zechariah the vision of the, uh, the vision of the, of the man in the myrtle trees and the, the message that said, we talked about last week, um, don't worry, get building the temple. Everything, you know, the angel armies have made everything peaceful out there. Well, what was happening in the background, far away from Jerusalem, is there was a takeover right here and, uh, and there was a change of dynasty in the, in the empire. The previous uh, family of leaders had been kind of siding with the Samaritans and the people around Jerusalem that were opposing the temple. And this new king was going to side with the Jews in the rebuilding of the temple. But they didn't know that, but God was saying, don't worry, I've taken care of the opposition out there among the nations, and, and it will be peaceful for you going forward. And so um, my accidental line here is the important one. 515, the temple is completed. And so when we get to Malachi over here, for a hundred years, the temple has been standing, the priests have been doing their thing, the sacrifices have been coming in. These people can't even remember a time when it wasn't just ordinary every day. The worship in the temple, the paying taxes to the Persian Empire, just the, the normal thing, everything was normal. Nothing extraordinary was happening. Now we often think about the, uh, the time from Malachi to Matthew as the silent period. And I'm going to talk about nothing next week. So I'm going to talk about the silent period. Uh, there's no biblical comment on it, but that's what's going to be my focus next week. And uh, the, the point I'm trying to make though this morning, so I'm going to expand on that next week, but the point I'm trying to make is for the people Malachi was speaking to, it was ordinary time. It was a period of time when God was doing nothing extraordinary. It was, it, every Sabbath was the same as the past one, and they expected it to be the same as the next one. There weren't no great Moseses or Isaiahs running around and doing fancy things and there, there were no uh, great floods. There was, like, it was just ordinary, day after day after day living. A little bit like us. Because we live after the resurrection of Jesus, but we're still anticipating his return. And we're living in these days in between where it sometimes seems like nothing's happening. It's just ordinary. Every... Every week's the same as every other week. Nothing's happened in our lives, in our politics and stuff. But in terms of the great spiritual things of the world, it seems pretty ordinary from day to day. So I think this is a particularly pertinent message for us. 
Malachi is kind of 100 years after the temple, still 400 years till Jesus, just kind of in this space where things are just day to day. They don't remember it ever being different. They don't remember any great things happening. Now, there, there is the Ezra and Nehemiah, the building of the wall. But I think for ordinary people, that would often just seem like the, the, the continual advancement of your society and your economy. I mean, God was doing things among the leadership there. But, um, but here we have it. And so these questions, then, are what the conversation is about. Um, how have we shown contempt for your name? How have we robbed you? What have we said against you? So let's take them one at a time. How have we shown contempt for your name? Let's read it in context. A son honors his father, and slaves honor their master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect do me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. So there's the accusation, right? In the priest's answer, how have we shown contempt for your name? I think. How have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? How have we shown contempt for your name? By offering lame and diseased animals. Now, I think we're all close enough to the agriculture to understand that. Every now and then, when you raise animals, you get an animal that's born lame or born blind or with a defect, or sometimes there's an accident or, or a predator comes in and an animal is injured. And as horrible as it seems, you can't afford to keep that animal around. The, the money you have to pay to feed it and stuff, it's not going to bring a return. And so you cull it from the herd. If it's born that way, you just cull it right away. It's, you can't even take it to auction. It's not worth feeding till it's ready for auction because it wouldn't get a high enough price. And so the people, the priests, were accepting these animals as sacrifices. They were accepting the leftovers. So how does that, how does that um, come as a contempt for God's name? Well, think about this for a minute. Let's say that you're writing a letter to Santa Claus. Christmas is coming. I know the stores have already reminded you by putting decorations up for sale. And you're writing your letter, and you put in there that you want a toaster from Santa Claus. And so I get wind of that, and I, say, and I, and I look around, and I think, you know what? I've got this toaster, the cord's been pulled out, and if you do rewire it, and you, every time you, it doesn't pop up, so every time you try to get your toast out, you burn your fingers. Uh, but you know what? Instead of throwing it in the garbage, I'm going to wrap it up and give it to you for Christmas. Yeah, I'm showing contempt for you. You would read that as an insult. The thing that's only worth throwing away 
The leftovers, I've already bought a new one for myself, is what I'm giving you. And that's what they were doing here. We can go back. We've already read uh, Deuteronomy and, and Numbers and, and Exodus and Leviticus. It's very clear that the people are to give their first fruits, to give the best animals for sacrifice, to bring the very best of the best to the temple in this way. And now they're bringing the things that are only worthy of being discarded. And this is kind of a collective wrong. The priests are accepting them and the people are bringing them and no one's saying anything about it. We kind of just all know together that we're doing this, but we're just pretending it's not happening. What do we bring to God? You and I. I know we're not in a sacrificial system like that, but do we give him our best or do we give him our leftovers? You know, This has happened to me more than once, so I'm not going to say whether it happened here or not. But as a pastor, I've come into a church to pastor it, and I have found a closet full of five to ten broken vacuum cleaners. Why is that? Because people think this vacuum cleaner isn't working very good anymore, so instead of throwing it out, out, I'm going to donate it to the church. Yeah, it kind of works. It pretends to pick up the dirt. It buzzes and whirs and makes you feel like you're doing work. Leftovers. Now, if, you, if you're one that donated a vacuum cleaner, please don't read it as a condemnation. <laughs> I appreciate generosity however it comes, but, but, but this is what's being addressed here. I can think of my own self. I can remember, um, I can remember a time when I found Sunday mornings to be a chore. Uh, It was always my intention to come to church and to worship God with other believers. And I did it most weeks. But the truth is, on Sunday mornings when the alarm went off, it was very hard to get up. I sleep a little bit longer, a little bit longer. And then finally you get up and then you quickly run in the shower and you get to church. You you come in just as the service is starting or maybe even a little bit after. And you try to pay attention during the sermon and you're kind of going like this and well, how do you turn that around? Well, here's what you do. Here's what I found out. And I did this as a pastor, too, where, where we, would, we would go through the week, and every week there's this and that, and finally, Friday night, the kids are, are too stressed out from school to do anything fun, so finally, Saturday afternoon and evening, we go to town, we play in the park, we go to the, back in those days, we went to Blockbuster and got some videos and came home, watch a couple of movies with the kids, and then finally the kids are in bed, and Colleen and I had picked out a movie, and we watch it, we go to bed at one in the morning, try to get up and preach a sermon on Sunday morning. Leftovers. But you can turn your week around, and you can say, you know what, Sunday morning is the priority. I am going to be primed and rested and ready to worship. And that's what I do now. Uh, I don't watch anything that has a lot of emotional content on Sunday nights. Saturday nights, sorry. Thanks. See? There we go. But, but after supper, it's, it's a ritual. It's, a, it's steps I go through to make sure my mind is calm. I'm prepared to look towards the Lord, and I'm going to bed early, and, and I'm ready. If I'm going to watch a movie late at night, I'm going to give that 
half a sleep day to my boss at work. That's not my first priority. Now, it's a little different for me because I come to the church for work, but even still. And I, again, if you came in here after we started the service today, this is not a condemnation. We all have circumstances. There's things outside of our control. Uh, life gets the better of us. That's not what it's about, but it's about what are we giving to God? Are we giving Him first priority? Or just the leftovers after we've completed all the rest of the priorities in our life. And we go back to that that question. How have we shown contempt for your name? And God's answer is, you're just giving me what's left after you've done all your other things. All your other priorities. In other words, there's nothing of value left for God. We have blind spots, don't we? They had blind spots. So let's go to the next question. The people asked, how have we robbed you? So again, let's read that in context. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. That's a lovely verse, isn't it? You've changed. You're just giving me leftovers now, but you're not destroyed because I don't change. I don't go back on my word. But that's not what this sermon's about. It's just just a nice verse. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? There's the accusation. Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will will not be room enough to store it all. Now we can get hung up. We can get hum, hung up on the uh, tithes, that word there, and it's not an unimportant word. But I think we need to make sure we read the rest of it because it says the the issue here is what's the, the issue about the tithes? That the their, the storehouses might be full of food in my house. So what we're talking about here, I think, is selfishness. But that one's too cute to really have impact, isn't it? So, maybe like that. Or maybe like that. Being selfish. See, if, again, if you were reading when we were going through uh, the books of the law, you will know that the priesthood, or the way God meant to set up his society was that God was the king and the priests were the civil servants. They had religious functions, they had cultural functions, and they had judicial functions. So think for a minute about the the thing that seems so weird to us where, where you come to the priest with a skin blemish and he declares you're unclean and you have to go outside the camp and then you come back and get it inspected. Well, if you think about that for just a minute and, and realize that the Bible is always very... Um, 
it doesn't use more words than it needs to. You know, when you're chiseling on a stone, you don't put more words than you have to. Um, it sounds exactly like a doctor's appointment. Something's wrong with you. So you come to the priest, they examine you, they give you a prescription, they tell you what to do, come back in seven days and we'll see if it's getting better or not. And then we'll go from there. It's a checkup. So the, the priests pr- uh, pr- provided for society a medical system kind of function. But then the other thing is that there was a, there was a system in place through the tithes and offerings, which you understand was not money, but was food and grain and animals and things like that. And, and uh, it was to feed the widows. It was to feed the orphans. It was to feed the, the aliens that didn't have a job. It was to provide for those who had lost their land through, through bad management. It was a merciful system that made sure everyone was taken care of. So when God says, you're robbing me, Because of the tithe, the issue is there's no food in the storehouse to be generous to those who have less than you have. That's the issue. You're being selfish. You're keeping it all for yourself and you're not taking care of the other people who can't take care of themselves. You're not taking care of the people who've had an emergency, who've lost their land, who've lost their job because of a sickness or something. That's what the tithe is for. That's why you bring it in, so that the storehouse in the temple is full. And the priests can do their work of taking care of the people. So what God is saying is, when you, it reminds us just exactly of Jesus' words, doesn't it? If you give a cup of cold water to one of the least of these, you give it to me. But if you don't, you're robbing God. And that's what he's saying here. These people had a blind spot. They didn't understand the significance. The last question that we're going to look at. What have we said against you? Let's read it in context. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly, evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. What have we said against you, God? You've said it's futile. There's no benefit to serving God. How often do we hear that? Ah, you go to church. I go do this. If it works for you, that's fine. There's no, you know, just whatever, whatever works, just go ahead and follow that path. There's no particular benefit to following God. Ever heard that? It's the same thing they're saying here. Why, why would we... Be so, so stingy about the tithe and about following the law exactly and all of that. What, we're, what they're really saying is that, is that we know better than God. God's word said to do this and that. God's word said to bring in the tithe and feed the, feed the hungry. God's word said um, 
to bring in the best and the first fruits for the sacrifice. But we know better. We don't have to do what God said. We can do it the way it works for us. We can just uh, think of ourselves as worthy, even if we're not following what God said. I think the question that might be asked here in our day, because we're not following the Old Testament law, is, is your commitment to God creating a life that looks any different than the people around you who are not committed to God? Now, we might put up our hand immediately and say, well, I go to church every Sunday. Well, they go to social club too. Maybe not Sunday morning, but some other time. Is the actual way in which you live impacted? Does it show that there is a benefit, a difference for those who serve God? Or is it indistinguishable from those who don't? I would sum it up this way. In Malachi, God says, you can't serve me with half a heart. And that goes back to that one phrase that you remember, have memorized from Malachi, even though maybe you didn't know you did. God hates divorce. In Malachi, God says, you can't serve me with half a heart. That's not serving me. That's something else. He doesn't say this phrase exactly in the book, but that's how, how I would sum it up. So look at these questions again. The first question, how have we shown contempt for your name? We can put it this way. Your best belongs to God. Then you're not. You've covered the blind spot. You've you've uncovered the scales. And you're not blind there anymore. I don't know what that means in your life. Each one's different. There's different things that we withhold from God. There's different things that God asks of each one of us. But if you're overcoming this blind spot, then you would know your best belongs to God. Second question, how have we robbed you? Or how would you know if you've overcome that blind spot? Well, the idea here, I think, is the idea of stewardship. Uh, You understand, uh, if you don't think you've ever robbed God, then you don't understand the relationship. The relationship is like this. God owns everything. And he gives for a short time during your life, sometimes for your whole life, but sometimes only a part of your life, certain things that you're a steward of. It's yours to take care of on his behalf. And then when you die, he gives it to someone else to steward it. It's not yours. And so... If you're a good steward, what do you do? Well, when the master comes, you give him the first, the best, the 10%, the 20%. Or you use it according to the master's priorities. If the master's priority is feed the poor and help the sick, then that's how you manage that bit of property and talent and ability and time that he's given you to be a steward over according to his priorities, 
not selfishly according to just your priorities. So that's how you overcome the blind spot. You, you learn the priorities that are God's, and then you use what he's given you according to those priorities. You become a good steward of what you have. And in the last one, the, the, it's kind of like this. Well, how do you know if there's any benefit to serving God? You haven't really done it yet. You're only doing it with half a heart. That doesn't count. You can't serve God with half a heart. You can only serve God with all your heart. So if you've never done that, how do you know there's no benefit? If you've never done that consistently over a period of time, because maybe it doesn't come tomorrow, how do you know? And in the, in the verses I read before, God promises that he will give blessing beyond what we can even store. But you'll never experience it if you don't give him your whole heart. So you're not even qualified to answer the question. In Malachi, God says, you can't serve me with half a heart. It takes a whole heart. I'm going to read, as we know from, uh, from our Bibles, after Malachi, the next book is Matthew. So I'm going to read from Matthew, something you're very familiar with, which I think ties exactly in with this message. Malachi to Matthew, the same thing. Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commands. Isn't that exactly the issue here? How have we shown contempt? That's an issue of we haven't loved God with our whole heart. We're only bringing the leftovers to the temple for sacrifice. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That means you'll bring the first things, the best things, the best of your time, the best of your abilities, the first of your finances in his service. And the leftovers will be for you. And then the second question, how have we robbed you? Well, we saw how that's about the storehouses in the temple, which the priests were to use to help the less fortunate, and that's related to loving your neighbor as yourself. How how could you claim to be a person of God when God loves all the people and you only love yourself? You only look after your own needs. Well, that's not what God's like. How could you be serving him with your whole heart if your heart's so different from his? He loves your neighbor. He loves the person that's less fortunate. So let us show it in our actions, in our life, that we love them too. Love God, love your neighbor. And then the last one doesn't relate to Matthew, but I think what it really means is this. What have we said against you? Well, you've taken the Lord's name in vain. You declare that you're a follower of Jesus, but your life doesn't show it. 
You've taken his name in vain. It's not about saying specific words that our culture deems inappropriate. I don't think that's what taking his name is about. It's when you claim to be a follower of his, but your life doesn't bear witness to that. That's what was happening here in Malachi. They were like, well, this Sunday's the same as next Sunday. Nothing extraordinary has happened. What difference does it make? What benefit is there if we just let it slide a little bit? What difference would it make? There's no benefit. We don't see a difference if we do it this way or that way. Nothing extraordinary is happening. And so bit by bit, we let it slide. Bit by bit, we don't even notice. And then when the accusation comes, I'm not robbing God. Then Malachi comes along with a hammer. You've got blind spots. But we want to end on the solution, right? The solution is the best part. And the solution in Malachi is the best solution. It's such an encouragement to me, and I think it will be an encouragement to you. Listen to Malachi Chapter 3, beginning verse 16. Then, then those who feared the Lord, what do you think the ones who took this message to heart and feared the Lord, what do you think they did? Do you think they built a great cathedral to God's glory? Do you think they went out and won some war? Do you think they... They gave everything to the poor and lived in destitution themselves for the rest of their lives. What do you think they did? Here's what it says. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. And what did God do? He listened and heard. He entered into a conversation with them. It's so ordinary. It's so simple. It lines up exactly with the priorities of our vision statement. Those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard them. We get together on Sunday mornings to talk together about God. We get together in discipleship groups to talk with one another about the Lord and he listens and he hears. We get together over coffee with a friend in a mentoring relationship and God listens and he hears. The solution here isn't to do amazing things for God. The solution is to just put him into our conversations. And then in conversation with one another, you're going to ask me a question that's going to reveal my blind spot. I'm going to say, okay, wait a minute, I've got to consider that. And in conversation with one another, I'm going to say something that hurts your feelings. And you're going to get upset with me and we're going to have a tension in our relationship. And if we want to continue talking together, we're going to have to resolve that, which means I'm going to have to look into my heart and figure out where my bad intentions were, where my selfishness was that allowed me to say something that hurt you. And God's going to grow closer and closer to number one, to my full heart, instead of just half. I find that that's so encouraging. We have these, these grand conversations in Malachi between God and his people and these accusations and these blind spots. And when we come to the solution, it's just so straightforward, so ordinary. Then those who feared the Lord, I don't know what you would have put there 
sold everything they had and went out on the mission field. Went to seminary and became pastors and teachers. Uh, Went on five short-term mission trips every year and never saved any money for their retirement. I don't know, what would you put in there? And all those things, we can do all those things. It's not about not doing those things. But the real issue here is they talk to one another. We can all do that. They talk to one another, and in that conversation, God listened and became part of their life, became part of the conversation, part of the dialogue. How do you serve God with a whole heart? Well, you don't do it, at least most people don't. I'm half a heart here, and the next second I'm a whole heart. You do it by getting involved with his people, putting him priority one, giving him the best of your time and energy, and engaging with one another in his body, the church. And he will mold and shape each of us into his image. And then our hearts will be the same as his heart. And our priorities will be the same as his priorities. And we will do and speak and act according to his will. We don't get there unless we get together and talk with one another in the fear of the Lord. It's not complicated. It's ordinary. It's possible for each one of us. The worship team has prepared a song. We we. We watched it last week. We're going to sing it this week. And it's the reminder that it's God who does the work and refines us into his image. And we've just thought through some of the obstacles in our hearts, our spiritual blind spots that keep us, that he wants to burn out and refine and make pure. And we've just thought about the simple process he's given us to get there. Speak with one another in the fear of the Lord, and he will listen.